Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome back to the award-winning Irish Times Women podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. First, the usual housekeeping. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud or whatever app you listen to the podcast on. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. Or you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes. Give us a review and tell all your friends about it. Now, it has been well over a year since we were shocked to the core by Hillary Clinton's defeat in the 2016 US election. Yet we still can't quite stop talking about it or trying to make sense of it. It may be even harder when you're Jennifer Palmieri, former communications director for Clinton's presidential campaign and for several previous campaigns. Before stepping into that role, Palmieri served as White House Communications Director for US President Barack Obama, and she also worked for President Bill Clinton. Now she has written a book called Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world. It is full of advice for a future woman world leader, but it also serves as an extremely revealing retrospective on election 2016, posing big and lingering questions on the presidential race we just can't leave behind. I was delighted to speak to Jennifer this week from London while she was on the UK leg of her book tour. We spoke about Hillary's loss, about former FBI director James Comey and how much he may have contributed to that loss. We also spoke about the challenges a woman faces in running for the US presidency and so much more. I began by asking Jennifer who this book is for. The book, I wrote it with... um young women in mind in particular, people who were graduating from uh, high school and college, that it would give them lessons that prepare them to succeed in the world America is today. Um, I address it to the first woman president because I want every woman that reads it to know whatever it is that their big goal is in life, they can achieve it. Um, and, you know, my frame of reference, and, and for me, my frame of reference is politics and being the American president is uh, the great achievement that can happen in my country. And, um, but it's not, it's just, as you seem, since you've read it, you know, it's not, there's a lot of politics in it since that's my background, but it's not really a book about um, politics. And yet it provides great insights, Jennifer, into how women in particular uh, react to loss. For example, how the concession speech was perceived. We won't dwell too much on the loss, but tell me, first of all, when you knew you might lose. Was that a terrible shock on the night or had you suspected beforehand that things were going? It it was a shock because I had, you know, I knew it was intellectually, I knew it was possible for us to to lose. There was a, you know, our own polling showed that a one in four chance of that happening. But 
the harder the campaign got and in, and in my view, the uglier that Donald Trump got, I felt that there was some sort of karmic insurance in the world that we couldn't possibly be going through all of this turmoil and difficulty in our campaign um, only to make Donald Trump president of the United States. That's what I couldn't accept would happen. I thought America is just not going to do this. And then it did. And you had women who didn't support him in America had to decide after feeling pretty devastated for a few weeks, either Donald Trump is the kind of man that's meant to win in America or women need to do things very differently. And what's inspiring and empowering is that women in America have decided that they're just that the old set of rules that we sort of lived our life by don't apply anymore and we're playing our own game. Mm. And, we, and we'll go back yeah. to that. We'll go back to that, Jennifer. But in the meantime, you also had, as you put it, four men hounding you. <laughs> yes. Tell yes. us about the four men, Trump, Putin, Assange and Comey. Yeah, it was it. Um, I mean, there's so much to unpack and examine for what happened in this election, given that it, it was the first woman. But it did not seem to me um, to be a coincidence that the first time a woman tried this in America, that we had such an extraordinary gauntlet to run through and did were hounded by these four men who all involved themselves in the campaign in ways that had never happened before. Um, you know, and I think each of them had uh, could justify their actions, but it was unprecedented. You know, Vladimir Putin didn't like Barack Obama. But he had special ire for Hillary Clinton, who um, had challenged him and the validity of the Russian elections in 2011 when she was secretary of state. Julian Assange had a fight uh, with her as uh, when she was secretary of state over WikiLeaks as well. And, you know, with Jim Comey, there was just he felt a need to treat her case differently than he had every other investigation. Yes, you say he went out of his way to break precedent, Jennifer. He did. And it's I think it's 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 uh, probably little understood even within the United States and certainly outside of it. But normally when the FBI conducts an investigation, they don't make the fact that the investigation is happening public, uh, which happened in this case. And they certainly don't come on it, comment on it publicly. And what Comey did was at the conclusion of the investigation, normally he would just make a private recommendation to the Department of Justice. Either we think there's no case here or we should pursue uh, and prosecute a case. And instead of doing that, uh, he held a conference that uh, had never happened before, and it was very damaging to her. And then once he had done that press conference in July, felt because he had informed the public of the uh, that the investigation had concluded when they reopened it in October, felt again the need to make a pseudo public notification through Congress, which, of course, leaked to the press immediately. Of course. And Jennifer, what do you make of his recent explanation then on the on the launch of his own book? So I think that um, what, what I, you know, Jim Comey is a Republican. I do. I do not believe, however, that he's motivated by political concerns. Um, but nevertheless, I don't think he was trying to hurt her, in other words. Nevertheless, his actions did have an extraordinary impact on her. 
And it wasn't his place to do that. You know, his, his concern was that the FBI would be attacked for being having been partisan and felt the need to publicly explain that. But that's not his job. It's the job of the Department of Justice who oversees him and are the political appointees in the Obama administration. Um, they're the ones that should have that. It's their job to worry about that. And they could have taken the heat uh, for the FBI's conclusion. The whole point of the FBI being um, independent is to isolate it and insulate it from these kinds of political concerns. And I, I don't think he intended ill, but the actions that he took ended up having a very devastating impact. Jennifer, you sound very measured and almost forgiving about this now. I I don't hold a lot of hate in my heart. <laughs> Just in general, it's true. And I don't, and I really don't, not all of my friends agree with me. I will tell you, I don't believe Comey had, was ill-intended. He just overstepped his bounds. And, but I, you know, whether I do have a question about whether the fact that, you know, he is very uh, judgmental of Hillary in an unfair way. He just asserts that she, he refers to having two deeply flawed candidates. He doesn't offer any explanation as to what he thinks, how he thinks it is that Hillary is deeply flawed. Um, he just asserts it. And, you know, I do have a question about if, a, if he would have treated a man in the same manner. Um, you know, I, I say in the book that we had this acronym that we would um, uh, laugh about um, on the campaign, because if you didn't laugh, um, that was P-S-A-H-I-J-D-L. There's yes. something about her I just don't like. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the concession speech earlier. Everybody loved Hillary's concession speech. Yes. And said to me afterwards, well, where was this Hillary during the campaign? Why didn't we see this gracious side of her when it mattered? And, it's, you know, it's I think we're comfortable with a woman in, you know, in the, the concession speech. Is Hillary, there's Hillary. She's a gracious loser. She's putting the country's interests over her own. Um, we like that in women. We're much less comfortable when they're seeking power, when they're out there saying, I want to be president of the United States and I'm the best person for it. And here are all the reasons why the guy I'm running against is terrible. <laughs> yeah, you know, that 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 we find less appealing. And I do have a question as to whether Jim Comey found something about Hillary he just didn't like. And Jennifer, what you actually said there about the reaction to the concession speech was bullshit. We are the ones who perceive her differently in different situations. Yes, yes, yes. They because. You know, people uh, and they they would they'd say, oh, uh, yeah, that she's different. She's so different now. It's so much better now. It's like, no, that's bullshit. We are the ones who see her differently when she's always been the same person. When she is um, in different roles, and when she was a United States senator, she was very popular. She was senator from New York. She was very popular with her constituents. And she was very popular with her colleagues in the Senate, even Republican colleagues. She was very popular with Secretary of State. When the public hasn't liked her is when she was running for office, either the Senate or the presidency. And, you know, women have come a long way. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I started the campaign, I didn't think it was such a big deal that we were electing the first woman president. And what um, I, you know, I realized when you step back and look at this from the scope of human history and the history of my country, it's still a radical thing for a woman to be in charge. And we've made a lot of progress in the hundred years since women have had the right to vote, but it's only been a hundred years and it's only been a hundred years we've operated in politics in the workplace. 
um, and made a lot of progress. But what the campaign revealed to me and this concerns we still have about women ambition is we still have a long way to go. And you say nothing draws fire like a woman moving <laughs> forward. Yes, yes. That is something our uh, the Secret Service agents that traveled with Hillary uh, would say when they got into, you know, it was a joke amongst themselves about some sort of bureaucratic disagreement. They may say, well, we only got one, one uh, option left, move forward, draw fire. And they would say that to me, um, understanding the... Uh, difficulty that we experienced on the, on the, on the trail. And I, I think that in a, in a sentence, that's uh, what happened to Hillary. She's for the last 40 years, she's been moving forward and drawing fire. She, from the time that she was a um, college student and she gave a commencement address at her college at Wellesley and um, she was, gave a very challenging speech um, she criticized the senator who had introduced her about the Vietnam War. And they put her on the cover of Life magazine as the face of the baby boomer generation. And then she was Bill Clinton's wife who didn't stay home and bake cookies and had a career outside of um, the home. And that was the first time we had a first lady that did that. And then um, she worked on health care, which is a very controversial issue in my country. And first first lady to do that, ran for Senate, ran for president. And so she's always just been, she's sort of, you know, to put it nicely, I think, because I don't believe everyone who has concerns with her or isn't or finds her vexing doesn't mean they're sexist. She's just always been a little outside of the role that a woman normally plays. And that confounds us. We don't know what to make about it. There's something about her we just don't like. I found one of the moving sections in the book, Jennifer, actually, when you said she sat you down at the beginning of the campaign and what you said vomited up. Uh, what it had been like to be Hillary Clinton for 25 years. Um, That must have been extraordinary for people who assumed that there was this cold clinical woman out there who basically had no womanly feelings, whatever. Yes, that's what I I think that it's it's you've put it well because it said if she has this ambition, which we don't haven't traditionally equated, you know, with women, then she must have no appealing qualities. Um, and she must be all ambition. Um, I think that the idea that you can have ambition and compassion and modesty um, in one woman, uh, people have a hard time uh, wrapping their head around that. And when she sat me down, as you explained, to say, she just wanted me to know everything, you know, went over her entire adult life and all the times the public liked her, the times they didn't, the times she could get along with the press, the times... They didn't get along. And just so I was sort of aware of it. And at the end of it, she said, you know, she didn't really know what to make of how she gets portrayed. And she said, I'm just a simple and serious person and understand why I provoke such rage in people. And I was like, oh, you know, it's just such a little gut punch um, to hear her say that. And I saw in that moment that there's this phenomenon that is Hillary Clinton and the in all caps and bold letters. And then there's this woman, Hillary Rodham Clinton, who doesn't wear a lot of makeup and has Coke bottle glasses and is a simple and serious person and wants to solve problems. And, um, you know, she finds the wild adulation. Some people have uh, uh, feel towards her as um, confounding as those that 
had this rational hatred. Neither of it seems to reflect the person that she is. Um, and I think it's worth examining all this not to say, gee, what happened to Hillary Clinton, but to learn from what what how a woman who's been in the public eye for over 30 years in America and tried to get the biggest job, actually got 3 million more votes, proved it's possible for a woman to be president. What can we learn from what happened to her? Now, Jennifer, that, that's where we come to strategy. Um, and I'm not saying this, this must have been extremely difficult because we're talking about the whole, all the issues around women and ambition. And the polling team came up with a strategy um, that, it, it, uh, it, that Hillary's ambition she had to have ambition, obviously, but that that ambition had to be expressed in terms of service to others. Right. Otherwise, she was off-putting. And you make the point, you say, I'm not sure she loved it. She embraced right. it, but I'm not sure she loved it. So was that right. perhaps a mistake or are you happy that you went in that well, direction? This is, you know what? I wouldn't do it again. Right. So maybe in that way, it's a mistake. But um, the world felt very different in 2016 than it does in 2018, in America anyway, and for women, um, I think that we had to meet voters where they were, right? So it's sort of, it's disappointing that voters, they, you know, they thought her most appealing quality was that she had uh, gone to work for the man that had defeated her. For, she had been Secretary of State for President Obama. And they thought that showed she was willing to put aside her own ambition to for the good of the country. Um, you know, that made me uncomfortable yeah. uh, as if I, I thought it was gracious of President Obama to give her the job, given that they had been opponents. But, um, you know, it, it was evidence that her ambition is about serving others. And so we needed to find a way to re meet voters where they were. And we embraced that. I, you know, I say in the book that we ended up, I feel like what we did was end in, in, in the campaign was making her a female facsimile of the qualities that we look for in a male president. This is really important, Jennifer. Yeah. And you see that path robbed Hillary of something very valuable. Yep. What was that? Her humanity, her the qualities that make her a unique person, the qualities that make her something other than a caricature of ambition and competence. Um, and that, you know, I had that sort of realization very late in the campaign in October of 2016. And I thought, A, that's a fundamental flaw in the design. And B, um, that really robbed her of her own humanity. And no wonder people think she's inauthentic. Now, in that, in 2016, because we had no model in our country for how, uh, for what it would look like for a woman to be president of the United States, it's the only model you could follow were, were men. And I'm not sure that, you know, sitting here today, I have a hard time articulating what you could have done differently in the moment in 16. Um, it felt like she had to prove, as women across the board of her generation did, that she could do the job just the same as a man. Um, and I have always felt in my own life that I could do that too. Um, I just don't want to anymore. Now I want to do the job the way I want to. And I think if we, if we 
you know, run as as we if we run political candidates in the in the model in a traditional model of how men have done it, and if we conduct ourselves in business and in media and the arts the way men have, we're limiting everyone. Um, and I think bringing a sense of feminine qualities, whether that's compassion, um, not muting emotion, not muting your passions, uh, a sense of cooperation into however it is we engage in the world, we're probably all men and women both going to be better off. Yes, I don't want to be trivial for a second, Jennifer, but can, can we talk about the crying room that you ran in the White House? <laughs> because that quite surprised me. Um, you're, you're, you, 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 there, was, there was this thing called the nod where when women were exchanging really disastrous news uh, on the campaign yeah. and before that, you would simply nod. The whole thing yes. was to be stoical, to simply acknowledge yes. that something awful had happened, but to move on to solutions. Yes. But your view is women should actually have a good cry, maybe, and men. Yeah, I had in when I worked for President Clinton, my office in the press office was uh, referred to as the crying room. I mean, it was also simply my office, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people would come in there and, uh, you know, complain to me or uh, would, you know, just feel the need to cry to let out some stress. Um, sometimes I would sit in there with them. Sometimes I would leave them alone. Sometimes it was men. Um, mostly it was women, but it was often, uh, but there were men too. And the, you know, I, I think it's like, these are on opposite ends of the spectrum of, uh, how women hold ourselves back on one end. We nod whenever we get really bad news. Cause we feel the need to show how tough we are. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we're very loath to show any, uh, emotion or tears in the workplace because that reveals, that we don't actually fit in. I think that at the root of this notion that you can't ever cry at work, that a woman can't do that, if a woman cries in the workplace or cries in politics, she is dead. It What's at the root of that is being a woman is something you have to overcome to succeed in a man's world. And you already said bullshit once, so I assume that we can say it again. And that you is can say it. bullshit. That's bullshit. Um, and I am someone who is very strong. I am excellent in a crisis and I'm a big crier. <laughs> there are no buts there. There's no, I'm strong, but I'm emotional. I am both. And when I talk about something that's really important to me, it moves me to tears. Um, as it's, as I, as it's happening right now, as I'm talking to you. And, um, I think there's a lot of times where people will say, I was going to say something, but I couldn't get through it without crying. So I didn't do it. And that is, uh, that is really troubling because if something was going to make you cry, it means it was really important to me, to you. It means it was really inspiring and we probably all would have benefited from hearing it. Um, and it just, it, there's, you know, I think women can be made to feel as if they don't belong just because we don't have all of the same qualities as men. And not only is that unfair, I think it's probably holding all of us back. 
Now, Jennifer, you did pay a price for this, both you and Hillary, and I'm not sure if this is if this is the stoicism that caused this, if it was that terrible, relentless pressure to to oppress your feelings. But you wound up in hospital with dehydration and exhaustion in August 2016, possibly at the worst possible time. (laughs) And then Hillary got pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Were you just weak women? <laughs> uh, we, I think, we're, I think she and I are both extraordinarily durable, and but we think we're invincible, um, and we're not. And I think probably, you know, I probably put more hours in the campaign trail than than the than a lot of the men on the that were on the staff, and certainly no one put more hours in than Hillary and. I did, you know, and I thought I was a little bit sick and I thought I would go to the doctor just to check it out. And I ended up fainting and a couple of times and ending up being admitted into the hospital um, with, as you said, exhaustion and dehydration. They thought maybe I had pneumonia, but I didn't. Um, And it was just in that moment that, you know, I had these flashes of all the absurd pressures we were dealing with in that campaign and how with each of them, I would nod and say, fine, okay, that's just one more thing to absorb. We'll get through that too. And thought it was insane of me to think that all of this was manageable. Um, yes. From the Russians trying to hurt us to, you know, how um, how outrageous Donald Trump would behave um, toward her to the, out, you know, unbelievable stakes of the campaign. And I just, it was scary because I thought, wow, am I deluding myself into thinking that all of this is manageable and um, even thought in that moment, maybe I needed to quit. Maybe I needed to leave the campaign. Um, And then, you know, I slept for four days and got back out there and thought it was all manageable again. Um, And that's what I think, you know, it would have been better to take up different, you know, reality checks along the way um, that could have resulted even in a different outcome. Well, Jennifer, just to, to diverge very briefly into what lay behind that the, the, the American vote and the, the, the Electoral yeah. College and all that. Um, I, you know, we're always going to say she won the popular vote, of course. But yeah. meanwhile, in the book, you talk about at one point you anticipated what you call a hell of a backlash. Uh, against Obamacare, against gay marriage, the loss of the display of the Confederate flag, how both Clintons were greatly troubled by the anger, alienation and dearth of hopelessness they were witnessing from voters and something you only came around to rather late in the day. Now, Mm -hmm. that seemed to me that you were acknowledging that, yes, you were up against a far greater uh, opposition beyond even Trump's awfulness Uh, that that was there and that was always going to be a huge thing to overcome for a third democratic presidency as well. Yes, it it felt to me like a reckoning. um, And that was across the board. I mean, every day you saw something on the campaign that told you this is a very different year. And I think we went into the campaign thinking it was going to be about the economy, as a a lot of elections are. And it ended up being about you know, very fundamental questions of what kind of country America is going to be. Um, And I think that there was a lot of frustration from everyone from, you know, Black Lives Matters activists to white coal workers who were unemployed in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, and that everyone felt frustrated that America was not living up to her best ideals and potential and that the opportunity 
or the equality that was supposed to be for 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 each of them was not there. And I think that during the recession that we um, uh, you know had experienced, that some of these frustrations would lie under the surface while people were just trying to get make it through the day and survive. And you know, a few years pass. That's when that's when they come to the fore. And it was not something I had um, expected. I thought things that were slowly getting better. Um, and it, uh, you know, and it resulted in, you know, some people being so frustrated that they voted for Trump, who they thought would offer something different or validated the view that they held. Of. You're, you, yes, you're quoting the Hoffer book, Jennifer, which you which you quote extensively in the book and which which I think should be mandatory reading for everyone involved in politics and outside of it as well. But yeah. in, in the end, Donald Trump, Jennifer, won by breaking all the rules, as you say. And yeah. the rules are blown up now. Uh, it was won to, to some extent, at least, by fake news and lies and divisiveness has been rewarded. And we're still looking at the ideal, the aspiration of a, of a, of a female presidency. Mm-hmm. How optimistic are you at this stage? So I, I think that it's going to take a while for America to recover from a Trump presidency. But I'm optimistic about the long term health and vibrancy of our democracy, because I see including a woman winning um, the way, you know, uh, there are more there's a record number of women that are running for office. Um, there's a record number of candidates, period, that are running for office. People who have not been in politics before are um, either you know, volunteering and engaging in campaigns of the local community or running themselves. And um, you see from the way the Parkland High School students handled the reaction to the shooting in their school, um, to the Women's March, um, to these number of candidates, people are engaging Civically in ways they never have before. So I, and I think that's a byproduct of Trump winning. So I think that there's, you know, there's still the the ultimate end to this is still in question, but I'm optimistic that we will make it through this period and come out stronger than ever, although it's going to take a long time to recover from the damage that he's doing. Um, and we're always going to be the country that elected Donald Trump. And we're always going to have to face the world with, you know, everyone having those doubts about us in their head. Yes. Um, and that's very troubling. Uh, I think a woman could win. I think a woman could win as soon as 2020. And Hillary proved that it's possible. Who do you think um, that might be, Jennifer? There are, I would give you four or five names of women, um, who, all of whom, you know, have a chance to be the Democratic nominee in 20. Kirsten Gillibrand, Senator from New York, um, Elizabeth Warren, Senator from Massachusetts, Claire McCaskill, Senator from Missouri, Amy Klobuchar, Senator from Minnesota, and Kamala Harris, Senator from California. Um, and they, um, uh, each of them, I think, I think, uh, in addition to being competent and good uh, policymakers, we're going to want someone who can unite the country. We're going to want somebody that can bring people together. Well, that's a healthy mm-hmm. roster you've just handed to us, really. Jennifer, to one, good, right? yes, yeah. it is good. One final question. How are you? Um, oh, your description okay. of the morning after uh, will stay with me for a while. The morning <laughs> after the loss um, and the, the loss in 2004. You've been through the mill and you've gone, you've bounced back every time. Yeah. Are you going to bounce back again? 
I have, I have, I have, I bounced back and I uh, loved putting effort into writing this book and having the chance to think very deeply about, you know, what happened in that election and really um, understand the lessons that I learned from my sister who went through a terminal illness, my friend Elizabeth, and um, being to have a chance to share those lessons with other women has been um, extraordinary. So I feel very privileged and, um, you know, I'm worried, I'm still worried about the, you know, the health of my country, but I'm a pretty happy person. Will you re-enter politics, Jennifer? I will always help. I mean, yeah, I will always be involved and I still do work, um, in the nonprofit world now, um, on uh, issues that I care about, particularly immigration and education. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I still help some folks on the side. Jennifer Palmieri, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Women's Podcast. Thank you so much and safe journey back to the US and to the the land of Donald Trump. (laughs) Thank you. And that's it for today. Thank you to Jennifer Palmieri for taking the time to speak to me. I think that was fascinating. Just a reminder that her book is called Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world. And it's out now. Today's podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.